You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you're doing that, I just want to remind you that we do have our PowerPoint notes available through our Google folder that you can access through our bulletin. So if you'd like to reference our notes at a later time, uh, we encourage you to do so. Um, also wanted to let you know, I've already told you that we're, we're talking about the Antichrist this morning um, as a whole, uh, looking at several different passages of Scripture, kind of building a theology to understand what Scripture has to say about the Antichrist. If after today you, you want to continue that study and, and continue to learn more about what Scripture has to say, I would recommend this book called The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. It's by Kim Riddlebarger. Um, it's a really good resource. Um, I started reading it about a year ago. Uh, when we left to go to Uganda to visit Chris and Melissa, I was reading it on the plane and spending some time over there reading it and kind of read it throughout the rest of this year, finished it up this week um, alongside of our Revelation study. So it strictly looks at the, 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 the string of teaching throughout Scripture about the Antichrist and uh, brings in some, some historical aspects of it, uh, looking again at some of those that have been thought to be the Antichrist throughout history. And so... Um, Pretty easy read, pretty short read, so um, if you want to, uh, you can take a look at that and um, potentially look at that as an additional resource uh, moving forward. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, I want to read for you this passage because we are going to spend some time on the back end of this sermon really looking and breaking down once again uh, the first part of this chapter in relationship to the Antichrist. So I want to go ahead and read it. We're going to talk uh, more of an introduction standpoint about the Antichrist overall and then jump back into this passage. So starting in verse one, it says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, our summary sentence for today. Christians have a responsibility to respond to current Antichrist, prepare for future Antichrist, and take comfort in knowing the Lamb will ultimately defeat the final Antichrist. Christians have a responsibility to respond to current Antichrist, prepare for future Antichrist, and take comfort in knowing the Lamb will ultimately defeat the final Antichrist. For kids, Antichrists are always present, but one day Jesus will defeat a final Antichrist. All right, we've already talked about this 
in our studies in Revelation that there is a, an understanding in the New Testament that there is a spirit of Antichrist that's been present since Jesus left this earth, uh, false theologies, false teachings about Jesus, uh, messages that would seek to detract us from Jesus and point us in a different direction, call us to worship or give our attention to other things besides Christ. All right, so that spirit of Antichrist kind of runs throughout the, the church age leading up to the return of Jesus. We've also talked about that individual people who act like an antichrist will be in existence until Jesus comes back too. So we're going to have, and we should expect, individuals to kind of pop up around the globe uh, with, with um, influential power, uh, deceptive type teaching that may lead people astray at various times. These individuals will pop up throughout the course of history leading up till Jesus coming back. So we've got this this uh, philosophy or this spirit of Antichrist that tries to detract us from Jesus that runs until Jesus comes back. We will also have individual people who pop up who function like an Antichrist until Jesus comes back. But we'll also see today that I believe there is a final, ultimate culmination of evil figure that we will call the Antichrist who is still to come before Jesus returns. All right? As Christians, we have a responsibility to prepare for all that, right? As we live on this earth, there is a spirit of Antichrist that is present. There are also individual Antichrists that are active. We have a responsibility to respond to those things, right? We need to prepare ourselves so that we're not deceived. We also need to be faithful to teach others so that they are not led astray, okay? So we need to respond to current Antichrists. We also need to prepare and realize that just because you may be prepared today, to respond and, and refute Antichrist, that deception is only going to get worse as we get closer to Jesus coming back. Okay, so we, we respond to current Antichrist today. We prepare ourselves further for coming Antichrist in the future. Even if we don't live until the final Antichrist gets here, we have a responsibility to prepare ourselves for future Antichrist that will come with greater deception potentially. Ultimately, we look forward to and we find great hope in the fact that the final Antichrist that comes will be defeated by Jesus, right? We said when we started Revelation, do not fear anything in Revelation more than you fear Jesus, right? John gives us a strong description of Jesus in the very beginning of Revelation because he wants us to know the scariest figure in Revelation is Jesus, the safest places to be in Revelation is by the side of Jesus because he is the most powerful, fearful being in the book of Revelation. Right? He trumps the land beast, he trumps the sea beast, he trumps the locust people, he trumps all these pictures that we get in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the greatest figure in the book of Revelation. Right? He will defeat, as that slain lamb, he will defeat the coming Antichrist. So we have nothing to fear even as we talk about the Antichrist today. All right? Introduction to the Antichrist. Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by Antichrist. Uh, the term refers to a philosophy as much as an individual, as we've already said. I don't know about you, but when I think of the term Antichrist, there's some terms and some pictures that come to my mind when I hear that, when I hear that phrase. Antichrist to me means deception. It means persecution. It means power, Right, like these are things that, that typically accompany an understanding of Antichrist. When you talk to somebody about the Antichrist, whether they're knee-deep in the Tim LaHaye series and, and the understanding of, of the, um, 
the, the, the teachings of, of those obviously fictional books, and they confess themselves to be fictional books, but are supposed to be loosely based on the book of Revelation. Even if you're knee-deep in that understanding, in that book, like the picture of the Antichrist, right, is, is one who comes with great deception, looks like a good guy, ends up being a bad guy, comes with great power, eventually uses his power and his deception to turn on the church and to bring persecution. Like, we agree on that. Like, that's what the Antichrist will be uh, described as or be seen as. He's one who will come with power, deception, and persecution towards the church, okay? But the term Antichrist does refer to a philosophy as much as it does to an individual. It's ultimately the seed of the serpent attempting to push back against the seed of the woman who is coming to crush the serpent. Okay, so let's jump back to our studies in Genesis, right? Back in Genesis chapter three, we have this understanding as Jesus or as God is deviating out punishment to Adam and Eve and to the snake and for their roles and what they did with eating of the fruit, God very clearly communicates to Satan, look, we're about to have two different seeds basically, right? Like you haven't captured Adam and Eve for good. You don't, their offspring don't belong to you. We are going to divide this seed there's going to be one who comes from the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, right? We get that picture again, not only in Genesis, but in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 15. Talking about Jesus, when he came to this earth, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He came, he canceled the record of debt against us that stood against us with its legal demands. He did it by nailing it to the cross. Okay, so the Antichrist movement, the philosophy of Antichrist, which is to distort our understanding of Jesus, the individuals who function like Antichrist, their purpose being to trick people into believing the wrong things about Jesus and to persecute you when you don't want to follow their ways. Their purpose is to push back against the seed of the woman. It's to push back against the goal of Jesus to destroy Satan. Okay, so that's the the outworking of this battle that takes place in Genesis. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, battling against each other. Antichrist pushes back against the seed of the woman. It's anti-Christian power that uses the resources of the government against the church in an attempt to thwart the gospel message. It's anti-Christian power that uses the resources of the government against the church in an attempt to thwart the gospel message. We've seen that already in the book of Revelation as well, right? Like we're, we're, we're telling you as members of this church, get ready because we may live in a society at some point where our government demands worship, demands allegiance to where we can't both be an American and a Christian and give our allegiance to Jesus. We'll have to choose. We may live in a society where that becomes the case and we have to decide, do we want to, to do what's the easy thing to do so that we can eat and live, and pay our bills, and buy things, and sell things, or will we choose Jesus? Because the Antichrist uh, mission is to use the government, to use the government's resources to apply pressure to the church, okay? As we've already said before, many Antichrists have come already with a final one most likely to come, and these ones that have come already, they're paving the way for a final Antichrist to arrive, right? There's some teachings for us, and really the only place that the term Antichrist is used in scripture is in the the writings of John in 1 John chapter 2 verse 18 Children it is the last hour and as you have heard that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come therefore we know that it is the last hour 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. All right, we skip ahead to chapter 4. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You then skip down to 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but we may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. But you can summarize some key things from all three of those passages. And again, that's the only place the word antichrist is used in the New Testament, or really in Scripture at all. Okay, I think what really flows out of those three passages is that one, antichrists are already here and they will remain here until Jesus comes back, right? They are known by the fact that they do not believe the the fundamental core things about Jesus that we believe, right? They distort theology of Jesus. They, they, They change the teachings of Jesus, right? They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he came in the flesh. And so you're gonna have some confusion about the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the role that Jesus comes to fulfill. So it's not that their their, uh, heresy and their false teaching is limited to these examples. John's just giving examples of antichrist theology at that time. But it really all focuses on Jesus. If somebody doesn't believe rightly about Jesus, scripture would call them antichrist, Okay, Antichrist. The other thing that I think comes out of this passage is that real believers don't listen to them. Real believers aren't deceived by them. Right? John says, if you're really of God, you listen to us. If you're not of God, you're probably going to listen to these Antichrists. Okay? John is distinguishing between what we call the universal church. If you're reading books outside of the Bible, oftentimes you may see the word church capitalized with an with a, with a uppercase C. That means the universal church, not your local church, but all believers that make up the body of Christ, okay? We try to take the universal church and give it an actual physical manifestation through local churches, meaning local churches, members of local churches should be true believers, but we know that's not always the case, right? Like even in our membership process, we talk to people, we have them explain the gospel, we have them confess their testimony to us. Why? Because we want you to be protected. If we say this person is a member of our church, we want you to then have confidence in thinking 
the odds are pretty good this person is a believer, right? Like they've been kind of checked and, and examined because we want them, we want you protected, right? We want you protected. Members of our church should be believers. Now we can have visitors and, and, and attenders that are not, that are here to learn more about Jesus. But if you're a member of our church, the, the goal and design is for you to be a true believer of Jesus so that the universal church is reflected in the local church. John says, that's not always the case. Antichrist will help separate this in the end times. Basically, Antichrist will come in, deceive those who are really not believers. They get out of the church, and what's left is the true church, like true believers, okay? What's really important to note in these passages in John and the passage we're gonna look at in 2 Thessalonians is we're not talking about people losing their salvation and being deceived by Antichrist, It's people who may come to church. It's people who have been involved in the church. It's people that never really gave their life to Jesus that will buy into these messages and will be tricked and deceived and will wander away from the faith, okay? That's what's clear in these three passages in John, that antichrists are here. They're deceptive in their teaching because they trick people about Jesus, but the only people that really listen to them are people that are not truly believers, all right? They hold to a false theology of Jesus. We already said that. They're present now. They do not have power over true Christians, right? John says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. God's message protects us. Antichrists often arise from within the church. They twist the fundamentals of the faith and they lead people astray, all right? What we've said in Revelation is that the final Antichrist will heavily mimic the work of Jesus, right? We said it's even possible that a figure, a human will come on the scene at the end of time, who will even mimic Jesus' death and resurrection, right? We saw that in Revelation. That he may even be able to possess the power of Satan to look or to appear or even to die and to come back to life. And he will deceive many through signs and wonders. We see that in Revelation. We've already highlighted that in Revelation 13, right? Where where the, the, the land beast and the sea beast are working miracles and signs to deceive people, to gain their worship. We see that, though, in 2 Thessalonians 2 as well. In a passage that doesn't have all the apocalyptic language, it's just a clear letter to a church, right? This guy shows up, and he has power to deceive people by working signs and wonders. It says, um, Verse nine, the coming of the lawless one or the man of lawlessness or the man of sin, it's by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, God sends this strong delusion through this antichrist who will deceive a lot of people. He'll mimic the work of Jesus. He'll persecute those who reject his call to worship him. Right? I put in my notes, uh, one commentator said, confessing Jesus is Lord, it's the supreme offense to the Antichrist. Right? When the Antichrist is on the, is on the earth, the worst thing that you can do, the, the most offensive thing that you can do is to cry out that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. That we're not giving our allegiance to anyone but Jesus. Okay? And that will enrage the Antichrist, enrage Satan to persecute the church. Um. Man, it's important that, that we realize how much God desires for us to worship him and him alone and for us to understand what it means to worship him, right? Transport back to the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai. What's God doing? He is revealing to his people who have been immersed in the Egyptian culture who really don't know who Yahweh is, right? Like uh, we had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were followers of Yahweh and then 
They all end up in Egypt, and man, for 400 years, it's just like we're being influenced heavily by the Egyptian gods, and we don't have any books or any writings, really, uh, potentially, that we can reflect upon to know who our God is. God brings them out of the Egypt through the Exodus, plops them right down in front of Mount Sinai and says, don't worship anybody but me, right? Like it's offensive. Here's the commandments. First one, don't worship anything but me. Secondly, don't try to make an image of me to worship. And then he goes on in detail to say, this is what it looks like to worship me properly, right? Like God cares about himself being worshiped and he cares that he's worshiped properly. What's the distortion that we're seeing in the book of Revelation? Worship other things besides God and set up images of them to worship. Like the two most offensive things that, that, that God has laid out, don't do these things. That's what the Antichrist shows up and, and deceives people into doing, okay? A couple of things about the Antichrist that I wanted to touch on just briefly that, that he's kind of known for. First of all, we've already talked about the mark of the beast, right? When, when you mention Antichrist, mark of the beast is usually attached to that. We've already told you in Revelation 13 where the mark of the beast is talked about, Whatever it is, and, and it's not clear in Scripture, so I can't tell you it's a tattoo or it's a piece of technology that gets stamped inside your wrist or, or whatever that may look like. What's not, that's not clear what the mark of the beast is, and it's probably not even a literal mark, right? Because in chapter 14, when we get into there next week, we also see that Christians have the mark of Jesus, and nobody thinks that that's a real mark, okay? We're not walking around with 777 on our forehead, and everybody else has 666, right? What it, does, what it does give to us in clarity is that whatever the mark of the beast is it, is, it is given or applied in a context where the individual is submitting himself to worship of the state and its leaders and denying faith in Jesus, right? So, so I told you last week, don't worry that you accidentally take the mark of the beast at some point and then you're held accountable for it right? Like, don't worry that it's going to come out that, that if you have a tattoo, it's the mark of the beast, or if you have a credit card, that it's the mark of the beast, right? Like, people try to use that and say that kind of stuff as, as though that's biblical, and it's not, okay? What's biblical is that whatever the mark of the beast is, it's an outward confession that I choose, I choose the state, I choose the security of a human leader over my King Jesus, right? You won't be confused as to whether or not you're taking the mark of the beast or not. Nobody's going to be confused as to the decision that they made, okay? The other thing that oftentimes gets attached to the mark or to the Antichrist is the abomination of desolation, okay? The abomination of desolation. Now, I heard some of the groups reading it. I'm gonna mention a couple of passages that you can reference. We're not gonna take time to read this and we're not gonna take time too much to talk about it in depth. Daniel chapter nine, Daniel chapter 11, Matthew chapter 24 are just a few examples where there is references to the abomination of desolation. Okay, in those passages, the abomination of desolation is in reference to a, a human figure oftentimes doing something in the context of the temple that is evil and sinful and idolatrous where basically worship to something besides God is set up in the temple. Okay, so there's some references in the Old Testament and here's what, what I'm gonna share with you in a minute. There's references in Daniel, and then there's fulfillment of that prophecy before we ever get to the New Testament. Then Jesus references it again before AD 70, and there's some fulfillment in AD 70 about some of the things that Jesus prophesied about the abomination of desolation. What we get in, in 2 Thessalonians, and I think even in Revelation 13, 
is a similar reference, even though the term abomination of desolation is not used. The idea here is that the man of lawlessness sets himself up to be worshipped in the temple of God, right? Draws people's worship to him as opposed to Jesus. We see that same pattern in Revelation 13, which falls under the umbrella of abomination of desolation, okay? We'll talk in a minute, because I'm going to talk about some historical forerunners to the Antichrist, what they did that is labeled the abomination of desolation, okay? Let's talk about some of these historical forerunners real quick. People that have been labeled the Antichrist. Pharaoh uh, in the Old Testament because of his persecution of God's people. Nebuchadnezzar acts like Antichrist because he constructs a golden image and demands everybody worship him or else they'll go in the fiery furnace. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is a guy who comes after Daniel's prophecy. This is a Greek king who attacks Israel during those hundreds of years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this may be something that we actually try to tackle on a Wednesday night at some point, what actually happens between Malachi and Matthew. Because there's a lot of important stuff that happens in there, stuff that I'm not even all that familiar with like I should be. Okay, because the Bible's silent during that time, but people live and exist and things happen and, and things happen to the children of Israel during that time. One of the things that happens during this Maccabean revolt is this king, this Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes comes in to attack Israel. And one of the, the, the worst things that he does, in addition to killing a bunch of Jewish people, is he comes in and he raids the temple. Okay, he raids the temple and he dedicates the temple to Zeus, right? their God, even claims to be Zeus incarnate, and he begins to sacrifice and slaughter pigs in the temple, an animal that was considered unholy to the Israelites. Right? Like it's the worst thing that you could imagine in the temple. Right? Like this is our holy place. This is where God led us out of the Exodus, and we've seen God's presence in front of us through the fire and through the cloud. Then he finally establishes the tabernacle, and then we build a permanent structure in the temple, right? And now this guy comes in and kind of desecrates it, right? Um, he, 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 he makes like these choices and decisions that are so unholy to Israel, right? It's a place to worship God. He says, worship me. It's a place to worship Yahweh. He says, worship Zeus. It's a place to offer pure animals as a expression of what you desire God to do for your heart, and they're slaughtering pigs, which is an unholy, unclean animal in their culture, okay? So there's a lot of fulfillment in what happens with Antiochus Epiphanes that Daniel talked about. It's even why we get this picture that maybe the Antichrist shows up at the end of time, builds a temple, and slaughters a pig in front of the Jewish people, because we've seen that happen before, okay? Um, the, the next guy, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation in his gospel, uh, or in the Gospel of Matthew, it's also referenced in Mark and Luke. Um, but this Emperor Gaius, or sometimes referred to as Caligula, in AD 40, he tries to erect his image in the temple and demands to be worshipped as well. 30 years later, Titus comes in as a general of Rome. He starts a fire in the temple, he loots the sacred objects, and he leaves it desolate in AD 70. Okay? These are examples of what it looks like to commit the abomination of desolation, to come in and, and really just ruin the, the holiness of the temple of God and to put up profane images to be worshipped in it. Another guy who's kind of referenced is Nero. Nero initiated the persecution of the Jews by the state. 
Okay, so he kind of brings in, per, or, or not the Jews, the church. He initiates the, the persecution of Christians, of the church by the state. He establishes the, the state-imposed emperor worship. Um, he's oftentimes uh, referred to as evil personified. Um, he kills his brother to claim the throne. Um, he has an unholy relationship with his mother and then ends up killing her. He kills his wife who was pregnant at the time. Um, he ends up taking a young man who semi looks like his, his, his wife and, and, and doctors him up to, to be even more like his wife. So you can use your imagination there what he does to this, this young servant and marries him. He then fakes to be a woman in public and tries to show what it looks like to give birth. Um, he dresses up like an animal and takes advantage of women. I mean, he is like grotesque, right? Like he's evil. He's awful, right? And, and, and this would have been something that they would have been familiar with. The people that are reading Revelation would have been like, oh, I, I know about this. Like, this, like we, we, we have a, a real life example of this. These are all examples of, of people who look a lot like Antichrist that, that we see talked about in Scripture and referenced in such a way. Um, in regards to what he looks like moving forward, obviously there's no temple anymore, right? There's no temple. And I'm going I'm to present to you 2 Thessalonians 2 in, in light of the fact that the temple being referenced there is the church now, right? We see that shift in the New Testament. We don't talk about the temple. We don't look forward to the temple. We don't need sacrifices anymore because Hebrews said we're done with animal sacrifices. It would really be an abomination to try to bring back animal sacrifices, in my opinion, to say that, to say that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough, right? So that's kind of done with. We've seen a lot of fulfillment in the literal temple, but we will see further fulfillment moving forward in the, in the form of the Antichrist. The most clear thing about the Antichrist, though, we don't know who he is. We don't know exactly what he's going to do. The most clear thing is that he's defeated by Jesus. That's what really reigns supreme in Scripture, is that Jesus defeats this historical figure that is to come. The only thing that we really haven't touched on in regards to the Antichrist, in regards to Scripture, is some references to him in the book of Daniel. And the reason that I haven't yet is because I don't feel like I've adequately studied those passages yet to teach them to you. In fact, I'm even entertaining the idea that when we're done with Revelation, we may go to the book of Daniel and try to wrap up our teaching on eschatology by looking at some of those important chapters because they really need to be studied verse by verse in the same way we're doing Revelation. And I really just don't want to break away and go to a totally different book. I'd rather understand that prophecy in the context of the whole book of Daniel whenever we do that. So um, that's the only place we haven't really touched on thoroughly in regards to our discussions on the Antichrist. What I think is the most clear passage on the Antichrist is 2 Thessalonians 2. So let's go to that chapter now that we've already read. I've taught on this passage before, so I, I pulled some things that we had talked about previously, but also uh, wanted to kind of present it in a new, fresh way as we look through the book of Revelation. Um, obviously, 2 Thessalonians 2 describes the Antichrist coming on the scene and deceiving a lot of people, right? Um, what I put down in my notes, I know our notes is, or my notes is that we can't stop this from happening, nor should we really want to. Why? Because this is God's perfect plan for the future, right? Like it would be a mistake for us to adapt some type of mindset. Man, how do we stop the Antichrist? Or how do we fight and, and try to destroy the Antichrist? How do we kick back against the Antichrist? We, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't try to stop this from happening because this is God's gospel plan. This is how God saves the world. This is how Jesus comes to rule and reign. So we shouldn't try to stop this. We shouldn't want to stop this because this is God's perfect 
plan, okay? Just to remind you, why, why is Paul writing this chapter? Why does, he, why does he write this content? First of all, it's very clear that Paul writes to clarify truth and he writes to show God's sovereignty over evil. What had happened here is that some false teachers began to distort the message of Paul. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right, so there's this false teaching that is circulating that the day of the Lord's already come. And Paul says, I don't care how you got that message. I don't care if you think a spirit showed up and told you that. I don't care if you heard a spoken word from a teacher. I don't care if somebody showed you a letter that was signed by Paul. You're not to believe that stuff, right? He wants to clarify the truth about the day of the Lord, about Jesus coming back. And he says, don't shift from what I've already told you. Don't shift, even if you think Paul talking about himself, even if you think Paul is teaching something different, even if you think a letter shows up that contradicts what I previously taught you, don't believe it. Remember, Paul says, if you hear me or an angel try to distort the gospel, believe what I told you previously about the gospel, not the new stuff that I bring you about the gospel, right? Believe the core message of the gospel. Believe the the, the day of the Lord, what I've already told you about the day of the Lord. He says, real clear to clarify to them that the day of the Lord has not happened, that certain things have to happen first before Jesus comes back, right? Verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Remember, we said that, that Paul may have only spent about six months with this church And in his six months of discipleship, he felt it important to have a a discussion about the Antichrist. In his early discipleship with new believers, the Antichrist was a topic that was covered. He says, Jesus hasn't come back until this great rebellion or this great apostasy happens and until the Antichrist shows up. Remember I told you before, this is where you would expect Paul to say, of course the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. You're still here, right? If we're talking about the day when Jesus comes back to end everything and the rapture really happens where, we, where the church would be uh, escaping the Antichrist, you would expect Paul to say, of course the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. The rapture hasn't happened yet. But what he says to this church is expect the apostasy, expect the Antichrist before Jesus comes back, implying again that we as the church, if we're alive at that time, will be here throughout the duration of the Antichrist. The church will certainly be, I believe, we as individual believers, if we live that long, will be. All right? Paul Paul writes to show God's sovereign control over the coming evil. We talked about this before. The greatest evil plan, according to this passage, has to wait on God's timing. There's a restrainer in place that will not allow Satan to do what he wants to do until God says it's okay. The greatest evil leader the earth has ever known will be killed by a single breath. Jesus shows up and it says he kills the man of lawlessness with his breath. The greatest deception this world has ever known will will sway no true believer. The greatest effort of evil will be frustrated according to this passage. Let's look at it a little bit more in depth to wrap up our time. Verse six, you know what is restraining him so that now 
uh, training now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. All right, so there's three different times that's described here in this chapter. There's a time of restraint, which is what we're living in right now. This is where Satan is active, antichrists are present, but the antichrist cannot show up. The great deception cannot happen because God is restraining it. God will not allow it to happen. So there's a time of restraint. Then Paul describes a time of rebellion, a time of apostasy. This is where Satan is allowed to elevate a figure, an antichrist, who preaches such a deceptive message, who works such deceptive signs and wonders that it draws the, the, the non-believers out of the church. Like it really divides the sheep and the goats up. Who follows Jesus and who doesn't? Well, the Antichrist shows up and he pulls out the people that are in the local churches that aren't really believers. Time of restraint, time of deception, and then time of retribution. That's when Jesus shows up on the scene. After however long the Antichrist is allowed to do his thing, Jesus shows up, ends the Antichrist. We'll see later in Revelation, cast him forever away into fire, judges the people who rejected the gospel, and it's only people that reject the gospel that buy into this deception, and he rescues his, his people. Time of restraint, time of rebellion, time of retribution. Okay, so let's look at those three real quick. We're called to be active during the time of restraint. For our kids, Jesus is holding Satan and the Antichrist back for now. Be active during the time of restraint. We're told that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Similar language to John saying, you've heard the, anti the Antichrist is coming. I'm telling you, Antichrists are already here. The philosophy of Antichrist is already rampant, okay? There's a time of restraint, though, where that, that effort, that false teaching, that deception, it's real limited in what it's capable of doing that God is restraining it ultimately so the gospel can go forth and people can be saved by the droves. I think probably when this restrainer is lifted and the Antichrist is on the scene, we probably don't see a whole lot of flip-flopping. We don't see a lot of enemy getting saved during this time probably. The deception really sets in and, and people that aren't Christians really show themselves to not be Christians during this time time of restraint, there's still opportunity for salvation. However long that time of, of, of rebellion, there may not be a lot of salvation taking place. And I don't think that time lasts real long. Okay. I don't think that, I don't think we think of it in terms of seven years or, or whatever that looks like. Okay. And I fully think that Jesus can save people during that time. I just think that the rebellion is going to set in in such a way where these people have rejected the gospel. And now the deception really sets in. We'll see that more in Revelation 14. All right. One thing, Satan is active, but his plans cannot climax during this time. The gospel is going forth, but the apostasy is delayed for a time. Satan is active, but his plans cannot climax as he wishes. He can't really do exactly what he wants to do. Because God is actively restraining evil until the appropriate time. All right, it talks about 
this restrainer. You know what is restraining him so that he uh, can't be revealed. And it's only uh, when he who now restrains it is removed that the lawless one can be revealed. When we get to Revelation 20, I think we'll see some parallels to this passage. It says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 20 in Revelation, Then I saw an angel coming down from the heavens, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the nations, uh, might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You know what happens after he's released for a little while? He comes forth on the scene and starts to gather his people, gathers his army during that time of deception. Again, that's why I think there may be little salvation taking place when the restrainer is removed and Satan is really brought back on the scene in full force. That it's really just a time for the armies to separate and to establish their their real identity. False believers that are in the church come out. Okay, they are persecuted. They're they're pressed with persecution. They mean they back off. They say, you know what? We'll worship the state. We don't want any part of death, right? Like we want to buy and sell and eat. Give us that mark. Do whatever it takes. We don't want any more part of Jesus if this is what it looks like. All right. Who is the restrainer? What's, what's keeping Satan back from doing this, this stuff now, right? Like, why not bring the Antichrist on the scene now? Because Satan is not allowed to, right? There's a restrainer in place. Who's the restrainer? A lot of different ideas. It could be the church. It could be the preaching of the gospel. It could just be government in general. Um, some people believe it's the Holy Spirit. Some people believe it's an angel. I told you when we first talked through this, I lean towards thinking it's a combination of the Holy Spirit and an angel, most likely, specifically, Michael. Right, Revelation chapter 12, we've already talked through that passage. Michael is highlighted as an adversary to Satan when there's the battle in heaven and Satan is cast out of heaven. We also see here in Revelation 20, an angel playing a role in seizing the dragon, who Revelation tells us is Satan, binding him, shutting him up, sealing him so that he can't deceive the nations any longer until that thousand year reign is over. Um, God is restraining the coming evil but he's also restraining the coming of Jesus. Think about that. So we read 2 Thessalonians and we say, okay, the Antichrist can't come because Jesus won't allow him to come, because God won't allow him to come. Jesus can't come back until the Antichrist comes. So not only is God restraining the Antichrist from coming, he's also restraining Jesus from coming. Why is that a good thing? Because that means we're not done sealing people. Right? We read in Revelation that God allows all the, the 144,000 that are supposed to be sealed to be sealed before Jesus comes back. Man, we should be grateful and thankful, especially if we have loved ones in our lives that are not believers, that, Jesus, that the Antichrist hasn't shown up yet and that Jesus hasn't shown up yet, that God is restraining both of them for this time for salvation to happen. I'm telling you, when the Antichrist shows up, there may not be a lot of salvation that takes place. That time of restraint is lifted. Satan is released. His ability to deceive the nations is now given back to him. And he comes at the church in full force. There may not be a lot of people signing up for Jesus during that time. Right? We need to be very active during this time of restraint to share the gospel with others. That's what's described in 2 Thessalonians. Antichrist isn't here yet. There's a mystery of lawlessness at work, but that, that man of lawlessness can't come on the scene until the restrainer is lifted, until what I believe the angel lets him out of that pit after a thousand years. 
be active during the time of restraint, but be prepared for the time of rebellion. For our kids, the Antichrist will deceive many when he comes. When God chooses to lift that restraint, Paul says a time of rebellion will come. It's a time of apostasy. It's not a time where people are signing up to follow Jesus. It's a time where people are, are walking away from following Jesus. The day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God, which I think, again, implies that he comes forth from the church, right? He comes forth from a a, a place that's typically viewed as a good place, a, a religious place. I think he's going to come forth from even Christianity. He's going to show himself to not be a true believer even, to come forth uh, from the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. John describes Antichrist in his passages as being guys who were with us, and they showed themselves to not really be with us. They were with us, and then they went forth from us to show their true colors, to really show what their true beliefs are. When that restraint is lifted, Mystery of lawlessness, uh, the man of lawlessness comes on the scene. Jesus will kill him, but not before, verse 9, he comes by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders with wicked deception. Who buys into it? Those who are perishing, those who refuse to love the truth, those who refuse to be saved. God sends them a strong delusion so they believe what is false so that he can justly condemn them for not believing the truth and choosing unrighteousness. A couple of things here. Number one, God determines the time, right? God does not allow Satan, the Antichrist, to come on the scene until all the saints are sealed. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Talking about the beast, talking about the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Man, we got to get everybody saved that's going to be saved before the Antichrist can really demand this worship because the people that worship it are people that don't have their name in the book of life. All right, so, so, so it's going to get sealed up. The people are going to get sealed and the Antichrist is going to demand worship and everybody whose name's not in the book of life is going to worship it. But God determines when this happens. He waits. John 6 says, everybody that the Father's given to me will come to me. Nobody's going to get left out. Everybody who's, who's supposed to get saved will get saved before God allows this to happen. And when God chooses to allow it to happen, he, he will allow Satan to empower a man. And this man will work deception through signs. I told you it's probably not in the midst of a Jewish temple because the goal here is to get people to fall away from Jesus. You know who doesn't worship Jesus typically? Jewish people, right? Like we call them Messianic Jews because they kind of buck the trend. For the most part, Jewish people reject their Messiah, Right? They reject him. So it really doesn't register in my mind why an antichrist would show up and rebuild a temple to try to deceive the church when he would be appealing to people that are already not believers, right? Like he's, he's working towards Jewish people who already reject the Messiah, right? We're talking about an apostasy where people are, are wandering away from the faith. So again, I think it's more coming forth from the church, the people that he wants to deceive versus through a literal temple that's rebuilt, Satan empowers this man to, to deceive through signs. He aligns himself with Satan and opposes God. He seeks to fulfill what Adam and Eve and Satan have been trying to do all along, to be like God. He will deceive others by detracting attention from Jesus. He's ultimately controlled, though, by God. That's what, that's what really stands clear to me in this chapter, too. 
right? God restrains the Antichrist. God allows him to be revealed on his timing. He's only allowed to be effective towards those who are not believers. And then when God decides to, he sends Jesus and he destroys the Antichrist with his breath. You see a powerful figure here, but when you read between the lines, you realize this guy has really no power at all, right? All the power belongs to Jesus. The Antichrist is not powerful. He's powerful in the form of unbelievers. He's deceptive to unbelievers. But when it comes to the church, when it comes to God's people, he really has no power. During this time as well, people will choose the deception. The great apostasy is an abandonment of a formerly professed position. These are people who claim to be Christians and now recant on that. They say, you know what? We're not gonna follow Jesus. It's a rebellion against the faith. It's the separating of the invisible church from the visible church. And man, as I was reading this, you know, I immediately think like, well, that's, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. But man, I started thinking, how hard, if I'm here during that time, this could be. I mean, let's just, let's just say for the sake of argument that this apostasy really is what Scripture says and a lot of people potentially abandon the faith. Imagine if, if three-fourths of our church stood up during this time and said, you know what, I'm not following Jesus anymore. I want to eat tomorrow. I can't buy and sell unless I confess my allegiance to the state. I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this church anymore. Like, I, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Imagine sitting here with like the first couple of rows only and watching everybody else vacate and leave. Now you're left going, what do I believe about this time? What do I believe about the apostasy? What do I believe about the Antichrist? Is this, is this what I'm really supposed to be doing? Because people that have been walking with me in my Christian faith have left, have left. This could be an extremely hard time if it plays out the way that it's, it's talked about here in, in 2 Thessalonians, literally. Those affected are those who refuse to be saved by believing the truth, though, right? Like the people who are deceived are people who refused the gospel. Our next chapter in Revelation, will highlight this more, but in Revelation 14, 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is before the Antichrist. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. There's ample warning. Don't do this. Don't follow the beast. Don't follow the antichrist. Don't get the mark of the beast. Plenty of warning. It says every tribe, nation, and tongue gets this warning. So the only people who fall to the Antichrist are people who reject the gospel, who reject the truth. The great deception only happens because of the great refusal. The great refusal to accept the gospel leads to that deception. We can take comfort that we survive this deception if we believe and stand firm. Second Thessalonians highlights this for us at the end. 
We ought always to give thanks to God for you, verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good and hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Philippians 1, 6, if God starts a good work in us, he finishes it. 1 Thessalonians 5 and Jude 24, they all talk about us standing firm and God being so faithful that he will make sure that we do. Man, God says, don't worry about the deception. Don't worry about the, the Antichrist. It will not be effective in you if you stand firm. Be encouraged by the uh, time of retribution. Jesus will defeat the Antichrist when he returns for our kids. When Jesus shows up, we're told that God brings justice to the world. When the Antichrist is revealed, take comfort because our Lord is not far behind. God will defeat the Antichrist. It's encouraging to know every forerunner that I told you about this morning, God defeated them and delivered his people. He will do it again, right? He defeated Pharaoh. He rescued the people of Israel. He defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. He preserved his people. He defeated Nero. He defeated Domitian. He defeated Hitler. He defeats people who oppose his people, and he always delivers his people. It will happen on the grand stage one day when the Antichrist shows up. God will defeat him and spare his people once again. Application. We need to gather faithfully and call others to gather as well during the time of restraint. Hebrews 10.25 talks about how important it is to gather with the local church so that you hold fast until Jesus comes back. Gather now so that during that time of rebellion, you still want to gather. And if it's hard to come to church now, if it's hard to find time in your schedule to gather with the people of God now, imagine how hard it will be when your life depends on it. Imagine how hard it will be when you are told if you show up Sunday morning, there may be police here to kill you on the spot for worshiping Jesus. It's gonna be a lot easier to find stuff in our calendar to do that day when that's the the result, when that may be what's waiting for us here. Man, if we can't gather now, why should we expect that we would gather then? Man, we need to build in the habit now of gathering with God's people so that when it gets harder, it's built into our life. We need to labor now to know the truth, believe the truth, and practice truth before the time of rebellion comes. Then our family worship questions. What are some things we can do now to avoid being deceived by the Antichrist in the future? Man, how can we prepare our kids to know how important it is to know truth now, to to see the importance of a local church and what the local church brings to a believer? Because the Antichrist is coming. And even if we don't live until that time, more antichrist will come before him. What can we do now to protect our, ourselves and our kids? Number two, how can we respond to suffering now to avoid being discouraged by the antichrist in the future? Man, if the suffering is going to get worse, how much more should we respond well to suffering now? Hard times, difficult things. Man, if those things challenge our faith, imagine how much more challenging the antichrist will be when he presses us with his persecution. Man, let's respond well to suffering today. Whatever that may be, whatever hard time you're going through, respond well. Do not allow it to discourage your faith in Jesus. Allow it to push you to Jesus because no, suffering is coming in a greater format when the Antichrist shows. I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna invite Tyson to come and close us in song. Appreciate your attention. I know we went long today, but again, I wanted to really give you something to come back to and reference in one sermon regarding the Antichrist. So hopefully that served you well today. 
God, we thank you. We thank you for revealing to us enough information about what's coming in the future so that we survive it. God, we, we, we know that you're going to bring on the scene greater persecution, greater challenges to your people. There's going to be a deception that comes to really separate the real church from the false church. God, I pray that as Christians, we would stand firm in the midst of that by taking responsibility to prepare now. God, help us to love the truth of your gospel, to love the truth of scripture. God, help us to see that every morning when we wake up and we study God's word, it's not about checking off a list that we did that today. We are taking steps to prepare ourselves for coming persecution and deception. God, help us to be faithful to communicate the gospel to others during this time of restraint, realizing that there may come a day where the deception is so great that people aren't getting saved during that time. God, we, we, we recognize that the Antichrist is a necessary part of your plan for reasons we may not understand. But God, we are very grateful and thankful to know that Jesus is coming not soon, not too long after the Antichrist shows. God, we are thankful that the Lamb is coming who controls everything to bring an end to the Antichrist and his reign. God, we look forward to that day, and we know that to get to that day, there's going to be some hard times we have to go through. Prepare us for those things. Help us to prepare our kids for those, those times that are to come. Help us to take seriously the warnings in Scripture that Antichrists are already here, proving that the Antichrist is to come. Help us to be faithful when suffering comes. Help us to be faithful when deception comes. Help us to, to be faithful to the point of death. Help us to be faithful even if our friends in this building walk away from the faith, that we will continue to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.